Well, again, so glad that you are here this morning. We are on week number three of a series that we're doing here at Ignite called Breakout. And this series is all about experiencing breakthrough and freedom in our lives. Because uh, as we've been talking about the last few weeks, all of us have different kinds of barriers or things, kind of walls even, in our lives that we, uh, if, if we're honest, that we are just in need of breakthrough. And it could be all different kinds of things, right? It could be that some of us face um, sort of relational barriers, and there's some walls that exist in marriages. There's walls that exist between us and our kids or between us and friends or whatever. And for whatever reason, it has been just a hard season. And if we could v- give voice to what we really need and what we long for, it's that those walls would be broken down and there would be freedom and breakthrough in, in that area of our life. Or some of us maybe are hitting some growth barriers in one way or another. We become stuck or stagnant in one way or another. Maybe there's, a, there's walls that exist and, and we are trapped by shame or stuck in ruts or addictions or baggage or whatever. And more than anything else, we just want to find freedom. I think sometimes we get isolated by sort of uh, by loneliness or insecurity, and there's walls that exist. And again, just whatever it is, right? All of us need to experience breakthrough in one way or another. And so, throughout this series, we've been looking at some of those specific barriers, and then looking into God's Word and talking about um, how He wants to lead us through uh, onto the on the path of freedom and and to experience. Uh, healing and life uh, that he has in store for us. Because we talked about the last couple weeks, again, God's desire is to break down barriers in our lives, those barriers that keep us isolated and stuck and enslaved, and instead he wants to, to break through into freedom in our lives. Today we're going to talk about breaking out of apathy, and this is one of those uh, one of those kinds of things that I'm not so sure we want to experience breakthrough in, or that we want to even take a square look at in our own lives, uh, because we'd rather just pretend that everything is fine, and yet it's maybe it could be what we need most, and so. Uh, and so that's kind of where we're going today. I want to start out by talking about, you know, one of my favorite subjects and undoubtedly one of your favorite subjects this morning, physics. So how about that? Are you getting excited now? You're like, what? But anyway, uh, there's, this, there's this whole law in physics uh, that deals with thermodynamics, and it's called the law of increasing entropy. And you might think I'm nuts, but as I was studying and preparing this week, I couldn't get it out of my head. And so uh, I thought, let's talk about the law of increasing entropy. Entropy basically means is referring to the inevitable deterioration of systems or objects, even sometimes society or whatever else. Uh, what this law is basically talking about is that if you take a you know a 2016 or 17 or whatever BMW and you go park it into a field for a hundred years, when you if you came back a hundred years later, which means you've lived a pretty long time, but if you came back a hundred years later, would you expect it to be in better shape or in worse shape than when you left it? Right, that's, that's the law of increasing entropy. Things in, in a closed system, things naturally tend to break down. They will get worse and worse. They'll move more and more towards a disorder and sort of simpler forms of everything until it eventually breaks down into, into its basic elements. The law of increasing entropy. Now, this is one of those things that I... I don't know. Should I take a tangent? Okay, well, <laughs> this is one of those things that I always think is interesting uh, scientifically because it kind of stands uh, in in contrast to 
scientific theories of evolution, right, in terms of the origins of life. I'm not talking about microevolution, talking macro in terms of uh, everything came from nothing kinds of uh, evolution, that everything came up that way. Because, it, 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 right, the, the law, the second law of thermodynamics, the law of increasing entropy says things naturally tend to break down over time. They get worse. They kind of uh, move towards disorder and not towards order. They move towards simplicity. Evolution in terms of as an origin of species requires exactly the opposite, that things become more ordered, more complex, they get better and better and better over time. If I can do, you're gonna hate me for this, sorry. An oversimplification might be that if you, we would say that if you took a 2016 or 17 or whatever BMW and you put it in a field over a billion years, it might get better, right? Or over 10 billion years, maybe it would move towards greater levels of complexity. Maybe instead of breaking down, it would get better. Maybe we'll come back and it'll be a space shuttle, right? Maybe it'll come, we'll come back and whatever. Again, now, the whole idea of this is that it, that is the natural order of things, that things move towards breaking down unless some, something from outside the system comes in and puts energy and infuses life into the thing, right? Now, what could something outside that system be? Hmm, right? Could, right? I mean, it's, it's in creation... I mean, from, from, from this side of the, the, uh, the podium, right, I'm just like, man, it just, it, to me, I just like, look at this and I'm just like, this is God, right? I mean, it's the only way it makes sense. Otherwise, things naturally tend to break down and that kind of thing. Well, enough of a tangent. One of the, the, the reason that this keeps coming to mind uh, to, for me this week is because I think the uh, second law of thermodynamics, the law of increasing entropy, applies not just to elements, not just to your old car left out in a field that rusts and breaks down on the tire or whatever, all that, all that stuff goes bad. But I think it, it, it actually applies to a lot broader things in life. Let me give you a, an example. Um, let's say, you know, boy meets girl, Right. And it's, it's love at first sight. It's magical, right? I mean, it's just, it's, it's, there's little, you know, fireworks and stuff that happen and you're, you know, it's, it's true love. And all this guy, I mean, he falls wholeheartedly in love. He is, he sets his sight on this woman. He's like, I am going to win her heart, right? This is where this is going. And so he starts putting energy into this relationship. He starts, he starts uh, calling her. He starts finding excuses and reasons to stumble by her place and be in the neighborhood and all that kind of stuff, he starts going after her, right? And, and pretty soon they start dating and they start spending time together and they're going for long walks and there's investment there. There's energy that gets put into their sharing heart and backgrounds and stories and all kinds of things. And suddenly uh, they kind of take it up a level and they get engaged and they move toward, they move towards right marriage. And they say, I do. They stand before their friends. They celebrate. It's love. It's amazing, right? Everything is great. It's going to be a magical, happily ever after kind of relationship, right? And then, right, we've kind of like, he's, he's, he's achieved his goal. He has won her heart. Check. And now he moves on. Right? And he's like, cool, I've got my wife, we've got our home, we've got whatever. So now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of set my sights on maybe climbing the ladder at work or maybe towards providing for my family or some of those kind of things. Maybe, maybe the wife too has, has, uh, has a little bit, she's investing a little bit differently, maybe in her work, maybe in a couple of kids eventually, maybe in all kinds of things. And suddenly there's no more energy or, or uh, work being poured into their relationship. It's being distracted by all different kinds of other things. And what would you expect to naturally happen to the relationship? Is it going to get better or worse if just left to its own? 
right? The law of increasing entropy. It's true in all kinds of life, isn't it? It'll, it'll, I mean, again, relationships are that way too. If we don't put intentional effort and leadership and energy and time and whatever into these things, it'll naturally break down over time. It's true. The law of increasing entropy. Now think about this. You think, you think the same thing is true in our relationship with the Lord? You think that could, that could be an application too? I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've heard stories of people who at one point in their lives really invested in a relationship with God. They were plugged into a healthy and growing church. They were reading their Bibles extensively. They were praying regularly. They loved to worship and to just be with God. There was no place they would rather be than in his presence. They were coming to life. And you could see it in their eyes. You could see it in, in their uh, relationships with all different kinds of other people. There was just life and Jesus flowing out of them. In fact, the name of Jesus was on their lips all, all the time because they recognized there's nothing better than life with Jesus, right? They were like, man, this is the good stuff. This is, this is what I, I mean, they recognized that he was the best thing going on in their lives. And yet, Story after story, time after time, you hear people talk about, and then I just got busy, right? Then life happened. Then we had a bunch of kids, or I got married, or stuff got really busy at work, and we kind of just shifted our focus. We quit putting energy and focus and even self-leadership into our, we stopped prioritizing our relationship with God, and all of a sudden, what happens to our relationship with God, Right? It starts breaking down. We start getting further and further from him. We, we kind of go through the motions. I mean, we still believe in him. We still, we still whatever, but, but there's distance that exists in our own souls. There's, there's you know, we, we kind of look back and say, it's just not quite like it used to be. It's not, my heart isn't quite, quite as close to God as it used to be. I don't hear him the ways that I used to. I don't experience his presence in ways. I mean, yeah, sure, it's good to go to church and I still go sometimes, but it's, it's not the same as it used to be. There's distance, there's drift that happens. It's entropy. What you pour your time and energy and heart and focus into, that those things are gonna grow, they're gonna get better. But, when, but left to its own, what we let slide in areas that we begin to coast, when you don't give focused attention and time, uh, eventually over time, they will begin to decay and erode. And it's the truth. It's the truth. It happens in marriage. It can happen in our walk with God. It, it can even happen to organizations, including the church. When a church starts to coast, when, when a group of Christ followers like this begins to coast and just starts going through the motions. And when people start to see church as not something uh, that they just, just, or excuse me, as just something that they come to, you kind of put on the happy face, you sit in the pew, you do your time, right? And then you go on and to, to real life after that. You just, it's just a religious experience, something that you do because good people do that kind of thing and you're a good person, right? When we, when we move more towards that kind of a picture, when worship and a relationship with God becomes more just repetitious prayers and songs and just habit, things that we do, when we no longer live out the mission of God in our lives, we start just to, to, to think, you know, more church and everything. It should just be more about meeting my needs. It, just, it should be coming this way, right? When we start thinking of, of, of God and church, just what can I get out of it? It's entropy. When churches begin to coast, when left to their own devices, they start to break down, entropy sets in, and, and whether we know it or not, it begins the death, 
spiral in our lives and in our churches. Anytime a church stops moving forward, stops worshiping, stops serving God passionately, starts, stops advancing his kingdom, anytime that Christ followers stop taking risks to reach other people and stop getting their hands dirty in service to the poor and those kinds of things, and they start just getting focused on me and mine and whatever's comfortable and easy for me and me and me. Anytime that happens, that church starts breaking down. That's the law of increasing entropy. Unless God's spirit intervenes, unless energy and vision and risk and passion and leadership is given to it, it will break down, it'll become dysfunctional, and it'll start to die. I spent most of my study time this week in the book of Revelation, and I have to say, uh, and don't get freaked out, this is gonna, it's not going to be like all prophecy and stuff kind of thing for you today, so I'm not going to peg your weird meters yet. <laughs> we will in other ways. <laughs> but uh, but it, the book of Revelation, it starts out, and it's just a crazy cool uh, and, and somewhat <laughs> scary maybe thing, but God gives a report card, so to speak, to local churches. There are... Um, several churches in the, the region of Asia Minor, and, uh, and God kind of spends a little bit of time talking to each church, and, he, and he, sa- he goes through, he says, he kind of reveals a little bit of who he is, and then he says, hey, here's what you're doing well, and it, like I said, it's a checkup, and here's some things where you're off base, and you need to kind of, you need to turn back around, you need to kind of do some course corrections, or entropy is setting in, and it's not going to be good. And so we are going to focus in this morning on one particular uh, church and one particular letter. It's in Revelation 3. It's, uh, it's about what God says to the church in Laodicea because I think God has some great stuff for us today dealing with this whole issue of uh, entropy uh, in our lives. And so that's kind of where we're going. If you've got your Bibles, you can op- open them up to Revelation 3, verse 14. Uh, if not, you can follow along on the screens or in the Ignite Church app. We've got notes and scriptures and everything in there, so you can follow along there as well. Revelation 3, I'm just going to read through this whole thing. 14 through 22 says this. This is God speaking to the angel in the church uh, in Laodicea. Write this. These are the words of the, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, he says, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, so I'm just going to kind of walk through this passage a little bit today, kind of focus in on a few things. But let me just ask from, a, from the 10,000-foot view, what happened in the church? What was it that, that God was saying as he's doing this report card to this church in Laodicea? What is he saying is wrong? What's out of whack in the church? What do you think? They're stagnant. What else? 
What's the word he uses? They're what? They're lukewarm, right? They're lukewarm. They thought they were okay, right? I mean, they were comfortable. Things probably looked pretty good on the outside. Life was going their way. They were still religious, still going to church at least sometimes. But entropy had sort of set in, and they didn't even know it. They still looked good on the outside, but inside, things were starting to come apart. They'd lost their passion for God. They'd forgotten the mission that had once driven them to reach hundreds and hundreds of people. Their passionate pursuit of relationship with God has been minimized to just attending church maybe and going through the motions. It's it's entropy. They were lukewarm. Not hot spiritually. They weren't on fire. They weren't just passionately pursuing Him. But they're not cold either. They didn't hate God. They didn't deny Him. They were just somewhere in between. They were just lukewarm. Let me ask you the question. Do you think that could happen in your life? Do you think that could happen in our church? Do you think our zeal for God could be replaced by simply just going through the motions? Do you think the mission of God could be snuffed out and replaced by our desire for comfort or distraction or whatever? Do you think it's possible for us to be lukewarm and not even know it? Could we look good on the outside but be coasting within? Do you think entropy and apathy could set in among us? What's the answer? Absolutely. I mean, the crazy thing about entropy is the only thing you have to do in order for entropy to set into your life is what? Nothing, right? That's the only thing that's needed, right? I mean, get distracted. Start pouring your focus and your energy and your time and your heart in all kinds of other places. Good things, right? Could be things like family and work and all these. I mean, could be community service. We could we could just pour all of our energy, put all of our focus everywhere else but on our relationship with God And that's all it takes, right? That's all it takes. Entropy begins to set in. Our priorities begin to shift. And things start to break down in our own souls. But instead, God says, don't do it. Don't fall for it. Don't get sucked in. He says, don't become lukewarm with apathy in your relationship with God. And this is the crazy place. I'd rather have you be cold than lukewarm. That's shocking. I'd rather have you be cold than lukewarm. He's almost, I mean, maybe a little bit of an overstatement, but I'd rather have you be an atheist and at least be consistent in your position than to say with your mouth, I am a Christ follower, I am a Christian, but don't, but live your life as though he doesn't exist. I says, I wish you were either hot or cold. If you're lukewarm, he says, man, it's like I'm, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. I'm going to spit you out. I can't stand lukewarm choose a side right pick a side and go with it i ran across this uh this quote from uh, friedrich huntington which i thought was appropriate he says it's not scientific doubt it's not atheism it's not pantheism which is sort of believing that god is in everything or uh, not even agnosticism that in our day and in our land is likely to quench the light of the gospel Instead, it's a proud, sensuous, selfish, luxurious, church-going, hollow-hearted prosperity. You know what he's saying? It's being lukewarm. It's churches and Christ followers that live their lives lukewarm, divided, somewhere in between, not hot, not cold, somewhere in between. It's doing damage to, to our witness. It's doing damage to our churches. It's doing damage in our own souls. Let me ask you a question. 
how would you describe your walk with God these days? How would you describe your relationship with him? Would you say, oh man, it is white hot. I am growing closer to him every moment of every day. He's what I think about when I wake up in the morning. He's, he's the one I can't wait to be with. Man, when, I, when Sunday comes around, man, I am there. I can't wait to go and worship. I can't wait to hear from him. When Monday happens, I can't wait to walk with him and to live with him, right? To open up his word, to drink it, to live it out in my job. I can't wait. On, on Wednesday and on Friday and on Saturday, I can't wait. He's, he's the one my heart yearns for. He's the one I'm living for every moment of every day. Yeah, I screw up, but there's grace. Even in those moments, I'm quick to turn back to receive his grace and keep walking with him. Would you say, oh yeah, I am white hot. I am living right there. Would you say that you're cold? You're like, uh-uh. I don't buy any of this hocus pocus, Right? Or would you, if you're honest, would you say, eh, that doesn't sound like me, and that doesn't sound like me. Right here I am somewhere in the middle. If we're honest, would we say that we're lukewarm? I spent some time this week uh, reading the book Crazy Love again. Have you guys heard of that? Francis Chan. He's got an entire chapter, basically, that he, he devotes to this whole idea of the lukewarm thing. And he paints some pretty graphic and, in all honesty, pretty convicting pictures. Uh, in, in fact, he spends maybe, I don't know, multiple pages just with little statements about it's sort of like you might be lukewarm if kind of statements. And uh, I'm not going to give you six or eight pages of it. I've trimmed it down by a lot, actually, but I'm still going to give you quite a few um, snapshots. And, and here's what I'm going to encourage you to do as you kind of, as we read through these, as we look at them, I just want you to, to ask the question, to open-mindedly, open-heartedly just say, does this sound like me? Could it be that maybe I'm lukewarm? Listen to just some of these. He says this, uh, lukewarm people. He says, gauge their morality or their goodness by comparing themselves uh, to the secular world. They feel satisfied that while they aren't as hardcore for Jesus as so-and-so, but they're nowhere, nowhere as horrible as the guy down the street. Next one. Lukewarm people give money to charity and to the church as long as it doesn't impinge on their own standard of living. If they have a little bit extra and it's easy and safe for them to give, they do so. After all, God loves a cheerful giver, right? Lukewarm people tend to choose what is popular over what is right when they are in conflict. They desire to fit in uh, both at church and outside of the church. They care uh, more about what people think of their actions than what God thinks of their hearts and their lives. Lukewarm people are moved by stories about people uh, who do radical things for Christ and yet they don't, do not act. They assume such things are for extreme Christians, not average ones. Lukewarm people call radical what Jesus expected of all of his followers. Next one. Lukewarm people rarely share their faith with their neighbors, co-workers, or friends. They don't want to be rejected, nor do they want to make people uncomfortable by talking about private issues like religion. Next one. Lukewarm people say they love Jesus, and he is indeed a part of their lives, but only a part. They give him a section of their time, a, a bit of their money, and a bit of their thoughts, but he isn't allowed to control their lives few more. Lukewarm people love others, but did not seek to love others as much as they love themselves. Their love of others is typically focused on those who love them in return, like family or friends or other people they know and connect with. 
There is little love left over for those who cannot love them back, much less those who intentionally slight them, whose kids are better athletes than theirs, or with whom conversation is awkward or uncomfortable. Their love is highly conditional and very selective and generally comes with strings attached. Next one. Lukewarm people uh, will serve God and others, but there are limits to how far they'll go uh, or how much time or money or energy they will give. Lukewarm people uh, think about life on earth much more than they think about eternity in heaven. Daily life is most focused on today's to-do list, uh, this week's schedule, and next month's vacation. Rarely, if ever, do they intentionally consider the life to come. Two more. Lukewarm people are consistently concerned with playing it safe. They are slaves to the God of control. This focus on safe living keeps them from sacrificing and risking for God. And last one, lukewarm people probably drink and swear less than average, but besides that, they really aren't very different from your typical unbeliever. They equate their partially sanitized lives with holiness, but nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be more wrong. Is there a collective gulp in the room? What do you think? Is it convicting? Is it challenging? Does it make you mad? Does it make you uncomfortable as we read through these? Jesus says to his church, he says, I hate lukewarm Christians. Choose a side, right? I wish, he says, that you were either hot or cold, one way or the other. So choose who or what or what are you going to live your life for? Either be cold and live for yourself, live for this world only, or live full on for me, live full on for Jesus, nothing in between. Do you know what causes spiritual apathy? Comes right from the passage, verse uh, 17. He says this, he says, You say, I am rich. I have acquired great wealth and do not need a thing. He says, but you don't even recognize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, or naked. Spiritual apathy, spiritual entropy stems from thinking that things are just fine on our own. I got this. I don't need God for my life right? I'm doing just fine on my own. I've got everything I need. If I need more pleasure in life, I'll take care of that, right? If, I, if, I, if there's something that I need, I'll take care of it. I, I am in control. I am the master of my destiny, right? I mean, it, that's, that's where spiritual apathy thrives, is it just like it? I got this. Yeah, we'll throw a little bit of God in, uh, you know, like on Sundays and a couple, maybe a couple other times during the week, just to make sure our bases are covered for heaven one day. But in terms of living our life now, I am in control. I got this. We'll take Jesus and put him up on his little shelf over here, right? Now, don't mess with my life. Don't bother me. If I need you, I'll let you know. But otherwise, I'm going to get on with my life and my occupation, my job, my career, my money, my stuff, my pleasure. I don't need you. I don't want you there. I got this. That is where entropy rises. That's where apathy just goes crazy. Self-confidence, self-reliance, affluence when we think we're strong enough that we can handle anything that comes our way, we think we're smart enough to know exactly what needs to be done. Anything we want, we think we can take care of ourselves. We sit back, we take it easy, we just coast through life thinking that we're in control. 
But the question you have to ask yourself is, is that true? Are we really in control? Are we really fine on our own? Yes, we need Jesus one day when we die, but do we really believe that we need him now, today, to live? Is it really true that we're the masters of our own destiny? Can I suggest to you, no, and if we're honest, there are moments in our lives when we know we are not. It's why church attendance was off the charts the Sunday after September 11th, right? There's, there's moments, there's things that happen in our world when sort of the, the curtains get pulled back a little bit and we realize, holy cow, I'm not nearly as much in control as I thought I was. It's why people all of a sudden uh, turn back to God when they go to the doctor and they get a horrible diagnosis. And we realize, you know what? I'm not, even the best medical care, the best science in the world, the, the best whatever, I'm not so sure I'm in control of this thing anymore. We recognize our need. It's why when we lose our jobs or when our marriages end up on the rocks, we suddenly recognize in our need for Christ. It's why we suddenly turn back to him. We start praying in a new gear. We start seeking him with, with a, a new kind of fervor. Because in moments of honesty, in moments like that, we realize, I don't think I am as strong as I thought I was. I'm not sure I'm as smart as I thought I was. I'm not sure I'm in control as much as I want to be or I thought I was. In moments like that, we realize and we agree with what Jesus says, that we are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Do you know what he's really saying with that statement? He's saying the reality of you and me is that we are dependent, we are needy, we are poor, and he is the one that has what we need. He's the strong one. He's the, he's the only one that is really in control of this deal. He's the only one that, that is able to do and to give us and to be what we need him to be. God says, don't fall into that trap. Don't get, don't get sucked in or fooled into believing that you've got it all together that you're just fine on your own. Don't become lukewarm with apathy and just sort of coast through thinking, I got this. Instead, he says, turn up the passion, turn back to me and step into the freedom and the life that I have for you. Well, how do you do that? I'm just going to hit four things straight out of the passage. We'll do them pretty quickly. Uh, first one is this, right, is, is, is repent of your apathy. Verse 19 says, those whom I love, I rebuke. Which, can I hit the pause button for just a second and say, I love that, right? Is he, is he saying these things to kind of hold out on us because he wants to put the smack down? He doesn't want you having a good time. Is that why he's saying it? No, he says, I'm telling you these things because I love you, because I made you, because I want what's best for you. I want to show you the life that you were born for. He says, those whom I love, I correct, I rebuke. So, so listen to this now, he says. Be earnest, means literally sort of uh, be zealous in your pursuit of good, in your pursuit of God. So be earnest, he says, and repent. Remember, this goes back to week one. Repent means to do what? To do a 180, right? To turn around. We were heading in an opposite direction. He says, no, no, be earnest. Turn back and repent. Turn back home to me. Set your gaze, set your focus, set your heart back on me. Repent. Come back to me. Come back home. Because Come back home to the only one that's in control of this deal, to the one who gave you life, who made you, who has great plans for you. Be earnest and repent. 
you become complacent. He's saying self-reliant. Maybe you've quit pursuing God. You've settled into just living your life for yourself and in your own strength. Maybe you've just gotten distracted and focused in on the here and now. But God says, quit it. It's sin. Turn away from your apathy and turn back home to me. Live your life with me and for me. Repent and come home and find life and freedom. Second thing is remember your need. <laughs> right? This is We just talked about it a little bit, but I'll just mention it again. Verse 17 says, you know, you say and you think, I'm rich, I've acquired great wealth, I don't need a thing. I'm fine on my own, but God says that's not the reality. The reality is you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You are in need. You're created that way. This goes back to week one. Remember we said from John 15, uh, again, we said it, it's the whole, Jesus says, I am the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me, you will bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do Nothing. He says, right? Nothing. Apart from me, you shrivel and you start dying. When we are settling in and believing that we are fine without God, when we start believing that we're good enough and strong enough on our own, it's pride. And that pride starts damaging our relationship with Jesus. It divides us, it enslaves us, and it starts to kill us. Instead, we need, need to remember the truth about ourselves. Got, I've got a good friend that uh, says that before he, his feet hit the floor every morning, he prays, and in so doing, he sort of preaches the gospel to himself. He reminds himself of the truth and the reality. So he prays every day before he gets out of bed. He says, God, you know, thanks for a new day. Uh, thanks for life with you, and I want to live my life for you and with you and in you today. I want you to be honored and glorified. I want you to be seen. I want you to shine through me. I want you to use me for your purposes and for your glory. Right? I want, I mean, man, I want, I want to see people come to know Jesus. I want to serve and love and all kinds of things in your name. It's, I want it to be a great day. And yet he prays, and yet, and yet the reality is I know the truth is on my own, I'll screw this thing up. On my own, I will turn away from you. On my own, I'll sin on the people that I love most and I'll do damage to those relationships. On my own, I'll turn your mission into something that's all about me. So would you forgive me and would you cleanse me and would you, I, I believe and I know that you are here with me, that you died to free me from those sins. And so in your power today, would you lead me and guide me and have your way? Isn't that great? I was like, man, I was thinking about it this week and thinking, how would our lives look different if we started our days that way? Right? Just reminding and remembering that we are needy people. Right? That we're the dependent, or the, yeah, the dependent ones. God is the independent one. Right? That on our own, we are not strong, but God is the strong one. On our own, man, we get caught up and stuck in sin and junk and all kinds of things, but he is the God that is strong. He's the, he's the risen one, right? The one who has conquered even death itself and now offers to set free those who, who come with him, you know, come and live in him, come and put their faith and trust in him. How different it would be, I think, if we were to live in that reality every morning of every day coming back and saying, Jesus, you are the one that we need. That's the truth about us. The third thing is to reframe your treasure. Verse 18 says this, I, I counsel you, Jesus says, to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear. It's sort of a picture of honor, of uh, 
that kind of thing. White clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put in your eyes so that you can see. I mean, God chooses, he uses some sort of uh, pictures for this town of their major exports in that day. But the big picture of what he's saying, uh, of what God is saying, is he's saying, I am the treasure, right? Don't, don't lose sight of this. Find real and lasting treasure in me. Come to me and find what you need. Come in me and find real treasure that you long for. Seek me in my kingdom and find the good stuff. The security, the provision, the joy, the stability, the pleasure, everything that you need and you want and long for in your soul is found in me. It's similar to the the parable that Jesus tells in, in Matthew 13 when he says this. He says the kingdom of heaven, he's talking about life with God. He said, you know what it's like? It's like a treasure that's hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he did it again, and then and in his joy, it says, I love that, then in his joy, he went and sold everything he had and bought that field. Do you want to know why? Because he realized that what was in that field, that treasure, it was better than the sum total of everything else he had in life. It's better. And Jesus is saying, you know what? That treasure is life with him. It's, it's found in Christ. Friends, we have got to learn this. God is not trying to keep you or to keep me from the good stuff. He is the good stuff, right? He's not holding out on you. He's giving himself. He's giving the joy-filled life to you in himself. And once you and I sort of reframe that in our lives and understand that he is the great treasure, then we'll discover the life that we were meant for. No matter the cost, he's better. No matter the cost, he is worth it. So we've got to reframe and understand what the real treasure is. And the fourth one is to reignite your relationship. I, man, this is just cool. I, I, so I read through, the, like I said, the first few chapters uh, of Revelation. You know, this, this part here says, here I am, Jesus says. But it, it's sort of pointing back to and re- reminding us in uh, Revelation chapter 1, when he's setting up these letters to the churches, he, he refers to himself as the one who, uh, I want to get the language right, the one who is walking or it's not even that word I'm blanking at the moment, but the one who is walking in the midst of the church, the one who is right before us, right? It's right in our midst, right in our sphere, right before us. Not a God that is far off, not a God that's up on a little shelf someplace, we, not a genie in a bottle that we rub occasionally when we want something. He is the God who walks among us, the God who is with us, the God who is speaking and active and alive and interacting with his people. And here again, in chapter 3, we come back to that where Jesus is speaking. He says, here I am. I am right here before you. I am in your midst. I am among you. I am with you. I am in you. Again, not far off, but present and powerful. Here I am, he says, right in front of you, with you. I stand at the door and knock. And again, the picture is of a constant knocking. He's like, you know what? I'm, I am going through every moment of your life. I'm knocking. I'm knocking on the door. And he says, if you'll hear me, if you'll hear me knocking and you'll open the door, I will come in and I'll eat with you and you with me. I will come in and be with you. It's a, it's a picture of intimacy and of fellowship and of connection with the living God. He's like every moment. It's not a one and done thing. We often use this verse to when we're thinking about evangelism, like, right, you open up your heart, open up the door of your heart to God and he'll come in and forgive you and all this kind of stuff. True, but it's not a one and done. He is constantly inviting you and me to relationship. He's like, I want to do every moment of every day with you. 
I want to teach you. I want to fill you. I want to be with you. I want to speak. I want to lead and guide you. I have got life in store for you that you can't even imagine. I've got an adventure in store for you if you'll come and you'll follow me, if you'll open the door and allow me to come in and live with you and you with me. Isn't that good? Friends, God loves you that much. He's crazy about you. He wants you to know him. He wants you to open up the door of your, of your heart and of your life and say, man, I want you, Jesus, today, in this moment, I want to follow you. I want to know you. Would you I'm all in, right? Would you come in and, and be with me and let me be with you? Show me how to live. I am yours. Yeah. One more story, and then I'll do some application, and I'll be done. Uh, I've, I've shared this before. It's one of my favorite stories. I love the imagery of this, but it's from a guy by the name of Erwin McManus. He talks about, he's a pastor and writer and whatever out in L.A., and he talks about uh, this moment. They, well, they owned a uh, two-story house when they lived in L.A., and he, one of the weird features of the house is they had a, a kind of a window up on the second floor bathroom that opened up a little path onto the roof. And he said, I always imagined, I always expected and thought, maybe one of my kids would get out there, right? He's, it just, just seems like the kind of thing that, that uh, I would have done when I was a kid. Maybe somebody's going to climb up on the sink, open up the window and climb up onto the roof and kind of go explore. And he's like, one night, he and his wife, uh, Kim, are out uh, in the front yard when all of a sudden they hear a voice calling from the roof. It's uh, their, their son. And... Uh, and he says, man, all of a sudden, his wife goes into, like, you know, uh, protective mode, right? And she starts shouting out words, get back in the house. I mean, like, you know, she's just sort of cracking the whip. What are you doing? Get, get. And he's like, just as if she hadn't said anything, uh, my son, he's like, looks past my wife and calls to me, dad, he said, can I jump? And he's like, I was, he's like, I was kind of blown back. He's like, again, my wife steps in and says, no, you can't jump. You get back in the house, right? What are you thinking kind of thing? And he says, he's again, just out of the blue, he, as, as though his mom hadn't said a thing. He says, dad, is it okay if I jump? And uh, he's like, oh, he's like, he said, you know what? I know that a dad is never supposed to, uh, you know, override a mom's orders. He's like, but I'm just telling you what happened. I said, yeah. <laughs> he said, yeah, go ahead and jump. And he, he said his wife at this point turns to him and is like, what is going on? What are you thinking? Like, what's going on? And uh, again, he said, he said, yeah, it's okay. He's like, and his son said, really? He's like, yeah, it's okay. Go ahead and jump. And he's like, okay. And uh, he's like, oh, one, one thought, buddy. He's like, uh, you know, try and clear the concrete and land in the grass. It's softer right? To which he's like, oh yeah, good idea, dad. And so he backs up as close to the house as he can so he can get a good running start. And right before he takes his first step, he says, dad, catch me, right? And so he takes off running and he jumps and he, and uh, Irwin says, oh, he, you know, he floated through the air. He comes down right in front of him. And he said, I almost caught him, right? <laughs> he said, close enough. He's like, he's fine. He healed right up. He's not, no, but he was, he was fine and that kind of thing. And he, he ends by saying this, he says, you know, I look back at that moment and you might think you should not be a parent, right? He says, but what was going through my mind right then was that there's going to be a day when another big step of faith is going to be facing him. And he's going to have to make a decision of whether to take the safe route and climb back in the window or to take a big step of faith and jump. And he says, you know, I see so many people that grow up in some kind of church 
and they walk away because it's just so incredibly boring and mundane. And I wanted Aaron, my son, to know that just like his father had called him to jump, that his heavenly father, God, if he would listen to his voice, is going to call him to such an extraordinary life that he'll have to take a deep breath. He'll have to fear, feel the fear in his gut and he'll have to step back out and take a huge jump of faith. Friends, I don't know where you're at with God today or what he may be saying to you. But maybe you are here today and you've settled for a boring and faithless version of Christianity which is safe and in which you are in control all the time. And if that's you, whether you know it or not, you have become lukewarm. Apathy has set in. Entropy has set in, in, into your soul. And maybe today it's time to repent and once again sort of open the door of your heart to a real and life-giving adventure with God. Maybe it's time to step back into that relationship with Him. Again, open the door and pray, God, I'm sorry for, for making Christianity something that I can control, something that's safe. I'm sorry for putting you on a shelf. I'm sorry for pushing you away. I'm sorry for trying to make it all about me. Would you forgive me? Would you bring me back home? God, I want to open the door today and tomorrow. The next, I want to open the door and say, God, teach me to live my life with you. Teach me. I want to be on the adventure that you have. Where I want to live the life where you're the strong one, right? Where, where you're the direction-setting one. I want to live the life that you made me for. Come and have your way in me. Maybe the truth be told, you've been pursuing money or careers or relationship or whatever, and you've sort of made that treasure of your life. And again, whether you know it or not, maybe you've become lukewarm too. And maybe today God is just screaming at you that he is the real treasure, that the stuff that you crave and long for can't be achieved by climbing an endless number of career ladders. It can't be, it can't be purchased with you know, truckloads of possessions. But those things that we really crave and long for in our souls are found only in him. I think it's St. Augustine that once said, you know, God, you have made us for, for yourself and our hearts will be content, continually restless until they find their rest in you. Maybe today the living God is calling you home and, and is saying, boy, it's time to turn away from whatever it is that's taken your attention and your heart and everything else. Maybe he's calling you back home and saying, man, I am the treasure. Come and find life in me. Come and bear fruit from living with me. Come back and step into relationship with me. This is the good stuff. Or maybe it's, uh, maybe it's just simple. Maybe this, this church stuff, this Christianity stuff is, is newer to you. And maybe, maybe today God is just calling to you and just whispering to you, would you, would you just come and get to know me? Would, would, you, would you come and take a step? Maybe for you, he's just saying, you know what? Why don't you just come to church, right? Maybe, maybe apathy or whatever, entropy has set in and you just sort of drifted away. You just That's not a regular thing you do anymore. Maybe God's just saying, you know, would you come with a heart that's open? Would you come with ears that are open wanting to, to get to know this God that's crazy about you? Maybe he's drawing you into his book a little bit and just saying, you know, why don't you, why don't you move beyond Sunday and just start getting to know me on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. Why don't you open up my word and learn to hear my voice? Why don't you hit your knees a little bit 
and start a dialogue, a conversation with the living God because he is knocking. He's knocking every moment of every day. He's, he's drawing you home. He's inviting you into relationship with him. Don't miss it. Don't miss it for lesser things. He is the treasure. I don't know, friends, what God is saying to you, but man, that's, that's my heart. That's my desire. I don't want to just let entropy rule my life. I don't want entropy and apathy to reign in our church. But what if we were to become people imperfectly, but, but people that again and again and again and again choose to open the door and invite them in and say, God, would you live your life through me? I'm yours. I need you. I want you. Let's close in prayer. God, that's our uh, cry this morning. On our own, we screw things up. On our own, we are not as strong as we think we are. On our, on our own, the, the truth about us is that we are uh, imperfect and empty and uh, incapable of being or doing or whatever. Um, all that we need and all that we long for. We'll screw it up. But you are our Savior. You are the good one. You are the strong one. You are our God. You are the treasure, the good stuff. I pray, God, even right now, in each heart, God, that we would turn to you. God, we repent. We say we're sorry. Forgive us for going our own way. Forgive us for pursuing other things when you are the real treasure. Would you reframe that in our own hearts, in our own souls? And God, just, we want to just open the door and invite you in. Lord, teach us to live with you, to walk with you, to know you, to hear from you, to respond to you. Come by your spirit, God, and fill us and live inside of us and, live and lead us and be our God.